Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey you, welcome back to the School of Unlearning podcast. I'm sitting down today with my friend, Terry Trespicio. Terry's an award-winning writer, speaker, brand advisor, and her TEDx talk, Stop Searching for Your Passion, has surpassed 7 million views. Her book, Unfollow Your Passion, is uh, top of mind for both of us today on the podcast. A little bit about Terry. She's a former magazine editor and radio host at Martha Stewart. Terry appeared on The Today Show, Dr. Oz, The Martha Stewart Show, and The Anderson Cooper Show. Her work has been featured in a variety of publications, including Oprah Magazine, Prevention, Business Insider, and Forbes.com. Terry is certified in the Gateless Method for capturing creative genius. She leads writing workshops and retreats all over the country to help professionals of all stripes take their stories and ideas from page to stage and beyond. In this episode, we cover a lot of things. First and foremost, how to unsubscribe from other people's agendas who Terry's greatest influence was growing up that shaped her sense of self and her worldview. Terry makes the case that our best growth comes when we stay in our comfort zone. And lastly, Terry wants all of us to have a life filled with passion, but she's encouraging us to reimagine the way in which we create it and the way in which it shows up in our life. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Hey, Terry, welcome to the School of Unlearning podcast, friend. Thank you. So psyched to be here. Yes, I'm so excited to talk to you today. In your background, you have your book, Unfollow Your Passion, which is what we're here to talk about today. Um, We'll talk about that also where people can find it towards the end. And then for those of you who are listening to the video and or seeing this on YouTube, this is Josie, my assistant, the cat. (laughs) (laughs) Very interested. I'm unlearning professional podcast podcast etiquette here. So um, yeah. so, Terry, you and I got connected years ago. We're still trying to figure out how we got connected. We don't know. It doesn't even matter, but it's kind of like you're this mystery person that I've now feel like I've always known and not sure how it happened. Yeah, and that's kind of like the best part about it. Um, it is. So, you know, I, this podcast is about is about learning and unlearning. And when I read your book, I immediately thought that each chapter is basically an unlearning on a specific topic. Like, Unfollow yes. your passion, your comfort zone, um, everything around just like how we exist in the world. And I, I do think that your your book is so rich. Um, each chapter kind of deserves a podcast. But today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the works. Look, I'm just saying I, I might have you as a repeat guest at some point. So um, I, you know, one of the things I love about unlearning is before we can unlearn, we have to learn who we are and who wrote our story. And a lot of your work is about um, figuring out sort of like deprogramming and figuring out who wrote our story, who gave us our narratives and who gave us our expectations. So I guess before we get into the book itself, I'm just curious to know a little bit about your brilliant mind and how you got into uh, publication and writing and comedy. Um, Were you always sort of thinking this way in terms of like going against the grain and challenging norms? Was this always how you showed up in the world (laughs) growing up? Uh, that's so interesting that you say that because I'm one of my, I like surprises. I like, I know some people don't like surprises. I love surprises. And so I find that the best part of life is when things surprise you. It It's great for the control freak like me, because it reminds me that I'm not in control, but 
I don't think we change at the core of ourselves all that much. We can change how we see, we can change how we talk, how we act, but who we are is pretty consistent. And when I was a little kid, my mother tells a story. She said, can you bring up the laundry from downstairs? And I stomped and I screamed and, and she said, what is the problem? Like I put up a real attitude about this very simple request. And uh, I said to her, I don't remember this, but she says, but I said, you don't really need that. You just want to make me do it. And she said, what? And she said, okay, we have to have a talk. She's like, I am not trying to make you do things just for doing them. She said, I actually would really appreciate your help if you would bring the laundry upstairs for me. But there was something in the feeling of being manipulated or used that did not sit with me well as a child, and it doesn't sit with me now. And so I don't suspect that everyone's trying to pull one over on me. That is not how I go through life. I'm actually very trusting, maybe too trusting at first. But that fear of what do you really mean and what do you really want, that has served me because it means I will, and it would serve anyone to question, why is someone asking for something? So while I've never really thought of it in that particular frame that you just gave me, but I, I am not a rebel. I was raised Catholic. I was a straight A student. And if I didn't get an A, I had a conniption. Uh, I was very much a good rule follower. I was a child of the patriarchy in every way, shape or form. But uh, I slowly started to realize what I don't like is rules for rules sake or doing things because someone else thinks they need them done. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're a questioner, you know, like from the, from like you. the core, you're I mean, the, yeah, totally. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Why are we doing that? Um, I also right. feel the same way. If, there, if there's a rule that doesn't make sense, like you, I am the least dependable person in the room because I will not execute, you know? Right. I won't do it. And I've, I learned to just ask forgiveness, not permission, because I'm like, I don't, People have their own boxes to check, and I'm not interested in that, but I am interested in doing things that will benefit the whole. It's not about a selfish need. Well, I just want to do things my way. No, I want to do things that make sense. <clears throat> but you mentioned comedy, writing. Those things were always things I enjoyed. But when we look at the heart of those things, and they're not unique to me, tons and oodles and oodles of people do writing and comedy and all these things. My particular interest in it is probably because, well, in writing, we're, if you're not writing to explore or challenge something, then what kind of writing is it? So I always liked writing because of, of that it allowed me to articulate, express, and also challenge. And if we look at comedy, which I am absolutely an amateur, like I do not make my living from comedy, but I have performed it and done it for a couple of years. And comedy, the art of it is also challenging, but with the effect being laughter but it is that's why i think comedy is the truth telling of our times because we laugh at it and it's a joke but it's not really we're really questioning things in a way that is palatable to the masses and sometimes not even mhm mm um so it sounds like you know ultimately your sense of discernment and wanting to do things that made sense for the greater good showed up in like so many different mediums uh writing comedy um you know so many yeah so many it's it's basically like you know, your, your vehicle for showing up in the world shifts and shapes, but, um, uh, over the years, but your, your core is that of uh, a questioner and someone who's, who's trying to figure out what this life is. And right. that's also a very good, um, yeah, very good jumping off point. 
Um, so when I look at um, your book, I can't help but think of, you know, you said you've kind of always been like this, but I can't help but think that there has been some really influential people in your life. Oh, like, absolutely. Growing up that helped shape your worldview. I'd, I'd love to learn about who's shaped you and who's influenced you. Well, I had, let's just be clear too. I had the benefit of incredibly progressive education from the jump. Like, yeah, okay. I was raised Catholic, which it's not real much progressive about that, but, and I had all Catholic education, like all the way through until grad school, but I did have access to fantastic education and, you know, the kind of, there's a lot of privilege in that, right? Like I was able to have access to things and ideas and supported and what I wanted to do. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. But at the same time, the people who influenced me, not only wonderful teachers, but in my family, who also was very supportive of my own life choices and all of that. But the person I would see, of course, my mother. Our mothers have, you know, if you had the opportunity to grow up with a mother, um, then you know that they have an influence on you, whether you like it or not. Uh, but I'd say, aside from that most, you know, your closest family, my uncle, to whom the book is dedicated, was one of the most powerful influences on me. He's no longer with us, Reverend Robert Barone, who was a professor of theology at the University um, of Scranton for many years and was a free thinker. Now, he was a priest. Again, you're under the rules. You're in the patriarchy. But he did his own thing. And I will just say this. Here's a priest who didn't want to live with the other priest, wanted to get his own apartment in town, wanted to do what he felt like doing, and did what he wanted to, even though people challenged him, envied him. Um, politically, he was maligned a lot, as it was as is in academic institutions, if you don't play their way. But he said to me, when I was in my 20s, he said, come with me, because he would travel the world every spring. He loved to travel to Italy, specifically to the Holy Land. And he said, you know, you need to come and see these specific things in the world. Like you grew up Catholic, you should come see Jerusalem and all, the, all of that. And you should see the great works of art and all of that. So he's the one who brought me with him. He wanted to take me to point out on a big group tour, by the way, peopled by nuns and priests and parishioners from his from Scranton. Like I got to go. And I was only in my 20s, like mid-20s when everyone, well, not everyone, but a lot of people start to get engaged think about getting married, starting a family. I mean, they're starting to wheel in that direction. And I had not one iota of desire to do what I saw other people doing. Even my friends, like I was a bridesmaid many times over, never wanted to be the bride. I was always like, God, I hope you know what you're getting into. Like, I was like, geez, like this is not, I'm happy to be in the train of supporters, but this is so not my jam. And I yeah, you were not trying to oh, catch the bouquet. Someone came toward me with the bouquet, and I was like, "Go over to your left! Like, don't come at me! Like, do not come at me!" Uh, but I, my uncle said to yeah. me on one of these trips, he said, "You know, you don't have to do what everyone else is doing." And I was like, "I don't." And he's like, "No." Mm. He goes because he was a professor, so he saw me as he knew I was a writer, and I he could see that I would be a teacher, which I did become. And he was like, "You could teach during the year, travel during the summer." You could write. You could do whatever you want. Now, anyone can say, you can be anything you want, but no one says to you, you don't have to do this other stuff. People say, oh, honey, you'll want to. You're going to want sure. to. You'll meet someone. Yeah. Don't worry. I met someone. I met a lot of someone. Right. It's almost like people say you could do whatever you want as long as it still fits in within like the norm of what is acceptable. Like You could do whatever you want. You could be whatever you want, but if it's, if it's somehow like 
deviates from from the norm, then it's actually just not actually okay. And I don't think it was conspiratorial. I don't think my family, no one wanted me to be in a situation that I didn't want to be in. But let's face it, it's normal to get married, have children, and yeah. live this kind of family life. Um, and I, I just was like, you know, it occurred to me, I was like, it was a relief. I didn't say to my uncle, no, I must get married. I must. I, it just was me. It was just my personal choice and a lot of people's choices. And I was lucky to be in a situation where people did not uh, say, well, no, you have to get married. Yeah. Instead, it's almost more, it's almost more sad because they'd say, don't worry, it'll happen. I was like, but you're presuming that that would mm -hmm. be the best possible outcome for me. And you're reassuring me that there's mm -hmm. going to be the option to do this thing when really what I needed and what I think a lot of well, women in particular need are more options. And so that never mm -hmm. left me. And in fact, I will say this, and it's funny, and you do not forget when someone says this to you. My uncle said, you know, I think you could have the gift for celibacy. And I said, Uncle Bob, mm -hmm. I really don't want to talk about this <laughs> with you, but that is like not an option for me. And I also don't want to talk about yeah, this anymore. Yeah. He's like, no, not like that. He's like, and he knew. He's like, no, I don't mean that. I mean, you would be fine yeah. on your own. And he meant you could live oh, the wow. life of what you want to do. You could. And he didn't say you might be celibate, which, of course, would be like, what does that mean? You're telling me I can't, you know. But the idea was yeah. you yeah. have the gift for this. You could be on your own. Mm -hmm. And I've coupled and uncoupled. I'm in a relationship mm -hmm. now, and I enjoy that tremendously. But I never defined myself in terms of, well, I have to be part of this or that institution or idea. And that has been incredibly freeing for me. Yeah. Um, shout out to your uncle and all that he gave you. It sounds like, again, your book is dedicated to him, but this is really helpful to, to hear, you know, his influential role for you. I think, you know, we're all really lucky to have a person like this in our life. Sometimes we have a few of them. I'm curious, since I, this is a podcast about sort of unlearning, I do think, though, that there's a lot of um, insight that he gave you along the way, clearly. I'm curious if there's a learning that you took from him or from someone else in your life growing up that actually stays with you decade after decade, it remains true and, or it, it evolves with you and it's still something you carry with you. So it's not something you have to unlearn. It's something you're like, Oh, that was, that was spot on when I was nine or 15. Yeah, I think that, well, I do think it, okay. Even younger, you mean younger than my twenties. Like I think because I was such sure. a nervous, anxious kid and so hung up on getting this right or doing this test well, whatever. And I clung to that. And I, I still, I believe it's part of my personality. I like to achieve. I like to have that achievement recognized. That's okay. Mm -hmm. But at one point, even like in grade school, I had like a near breakdown because I was struggling with an assignment. I just had a total, I mean, you want to have a writer's block, a mental block. I had it. And I was mm. just in to the point where the principal called me to the office of this small parochial school. And like my mother had talked mm -hmm. to my teacher and then finally, you know, sister, whomever brought me to the office and she said, you know, you don't have to turn this paper in next week. You could turn it in next summer if you want. She's like, this is mm. not the end of the world here. Like it takes a lot for a Catholic nun to tell you not to do your homework. But I realized I had True. too much on the one thing. And I found that even though I did well in school and I excelled in it, I realized that wasn't everything. And I made myself pretty unhappy and worked a lot harder maybe than I needed to. And so as I get older, mm -hmm. I realized, well, <clears throat> same with you. Like, what is the point of this? 
<clears throat> why do I have to do this this way? How do I, is it okay if it's not all perfect, if it's not all A's all the time? Can I let some things go? And my life now is better because I can look back and say, that was too much. And that that stress, that decision to be that white knuckled grip that some people feel as a kid like I did, but never let go, that that does not mm -hmm. allow you to be the best at anything. That grip, I try to work mm -hmm. the opposite. How can I expand, loosen, you know, even I'm not a great runner, but I enjoy doing it. And one of the great running teachers say, loose, loose, stay loose. That incredible effort. Uh, don't get A's for killing yourself. Like do not get A's for crushing your, your right. own spirit. And I think it's allowed me to see that I'm at my best when I allow there to be some space. Mm -hmm. But it also takes some confidence too, Terry, you know, to, to, to fail, to fail a little bit better, to, um, to play around with what society wants you to do and then to kind of like divert your attention. To disappoint mm -hmm. people, to allow someone to be disappointed yeah. and be like, that's okay. You know, right. Oh, well, right. oh, well, I guess I, I must have disappointed you. And that might be hard. Someone's disappointed, but the pleasing is the problem. Yeah. It's also like, you know, disappointing others could be hard. I think, though, I was actually talking to some students recently and I was like, it was really interesting. They all said we were talking about this idea of unlearning. And I'm going to get to your chapter about the things that we swallow, which is just a great sort of example of how we, uh, we shift our attention from a very young age when we're, we're babies, we're told to eat food and we spit mm -hmm. it out. And, and then at some point we start to just swallow everything. That everything. Yes. Yes. Everything. I can't wait to hear you just riff on that, but you, you'd be surprised the students, these were 17, 18 year old students. They said to me, if I got the wrong order at a restaurant, I wouldn't turn it. I wouldn't return it. I wouldn't raise my hand and ask for the correct order because I wouldn't want to disappoint the waitress or the waiter. I wouldn't want to upset them. And I just thought that and it was, we did a, uh, a vote and everyone in the room said that they would not say anything. They would just eat the food that they didn't really want because they did not want to make a ruckus. And so your ability from a young age to, to make a ruckus, so to speak, or to say, say what was your truth does take a sort of special um, sense of self, a confidence and a courage that you know, isn't always hundred percent bulletproof, but it's there. It's like in the background, right. it's like brewing for you. I can, I can. Oh, but sense. I didn't have it. Um, I didn't have it. I mean, I, I know I would absolutely just be like, not say anything. And I think some of that yeah. to be fair is that we don't need to kick up a ruckus every time I pick my battles. Some things are not worth mm -hmm. fighting over and making a thing and beware the other side of that, where we make an issue of everything is exhausting for ourselves mm. and other people. And sometimes I'm like, man, it's fine. Mm -hmm. It's not, I can let some things go and not have it be, oh, I'm a people pleaser, but we pick at least if we can choose. Mm -hmm. That's the key. Yeah. So, so your book to me is like, really, I said in this, I was writing my little notes, by the way, anyone who's listening, I write little hearts and little annotate all over my book. It's how I retain information. Um, I felt like your book, and I feel like your book is sort of a call to reimagine our lives. It's also a, um, a call to unsubscribe from the life that other people have told us we have to live. And it's actually, it feels like an invitation. It just feels like an invitation to consider each chapter is like a different consideration. Mm -hmm. Um, chapter one is how to unsubscribe from someone else's, someone else's agenda, um, which is just really, really profound. And I love the, the point we just alluded to about that babies spit out food they don't want. And so what happens, Terry, when we're babies, we listen to our body, we say, absolutely, I don't want this weird, <laughs> mushy broccoli, and we spit it out right. and we throw it against the wall. 
what happens to us? How do we then move to the space of swallowing every single thing that comes our oh, way? I mean, the cultural, it's, it's not like we want to get, oh, we should have no culture and no agreements and no nothing. There, there has to be, there's a trade-off there. But there, somewhere along the line, you learn if you don't eat this, grandma will be upset. You don't want to hurt someone's feelings. And especially since I don't know what it is to be a man, and I hear a lot from women more than I do from men, that this is a thing where we're told our actions that we're responsible for other people's emotions with our actions. And we are in some way, mm -hmm. but I'm not the keeper of everyone's emotions. But if I think that, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings, I'm going to eat something that I don't like because I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. You might do that once, but like, how often are we going to, and I mean, literally eat here. We're talking about like, this is a metaphor, but it's also real life. People eat all things all the time yeah, because they don't literally. want to, or they'll mm -hmm. eat more because they don't, they want to, sh it's a sign of, oh, I appreciate what you made for me or, or you're around people who are all eating more. And so you eat more to stay, you know, it's, we're trying to connect above all and meals are tricky for that reason. Um, and so, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's part of it. That That's not that that's bad. It's just that at some point you got to stop eating things you don't like for one, especially if they upset you, <laughs> your body. But yeah. the story yeah. in that chapter was in, and actually the whole genesis of the, the book started around the moment a little girl I used to play with who was a bit of a bully um, pulled a button mm -hmm. off her bedspread and told me to swallow it, told me to eat it. And I was like, I don't know if you can eat that. And she's like, yeah, yes, you can. Yeah. Yes, you can. Yeah. And I said that when people in power say things, it doesn't matter if they're true. Like there, she was in control of that relationship. She was, you know, the dominant. And that I remember thinking, well, maybe it is candy. I started to rationalize, like, well, it's fine. Like we do for everything. I rationalize tons of things. We all do. I, as I said, I'm not a rebel. Mm -hmm. I put that button mm -hmm. in my mouth and I bit down on it. And I remember being like, I'm eating something I'm probably not supposed to eat, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I was mad, but I could have just said, no, what was she going to do? But there's a tremendous pressure. And I'm saying this because I know the pressure. And so that's the example that I remember from when I was a kid, but also yeah. that we continue to swallow things to appease, to connect, to be approved of, but also because we think they're right, which is why I, as much as I hate cliche, I also hate moralism. <clears throat> that might be a little mm. bit ironic because I obviously have my own moral code, what I think is right, but I don't like moralism. I don't like when, especially toward women, are told what they're doing is right or wrong or, you know, like, oh, you shouldn't do that. That's shaming. And I think mm -hmm. that we get mm -hmm. so like, oh, well, I, I should just reduce the number of times I'm ashamed. And so they'll do anything to not be ashamed. Like, it's messed up. Mm. But it is yeah. how we come to do it. The answer isn't to go, meh. I'm not taking any of this anymore. The answer is yeah. to find ways that you don't have to completely fold under other people and how we can, as I say, it's not about canceling everybody necessarily, but it is unsubscribing. Mm -hmm. When I unsubscribe, I mm -hmm. say, I'm not listening to this. I'm not listening to this. Decide who you're not going to listen to. Mm -hmm. And also deciding who you will listen to, which I think you're calling to yes. in this book is like a listening to the self and the body. You actually say this a few times in the first chapter is just this is a call to listen to your to literally what your body is telling you. Um, yes. And I appreciate the nuance here, by the way. There's so much nuance about all of these topics. It's really important to flesh them out. I'd love to yeah, know for you personally. Right. What is your relationship with saying no these days? Like, how does that show up for oh, you? Oh, these and, days? You know, very different. Yeah. 
Uh, it's still very hard for me uh, to say no. I want to say yes to things because I want to literally, I, I genuinely want to be there for people and to do things. And I also don't want to miss out on opportunities. So I'm tempted toward yes still. Like if there's a gauge, like empty full, I'm still like, yes, no. I'm always still leaning right. toward yes. But I have a, you can't see it here, but I have a, um, a picture on my wall from it's called, uh, they're on Instagram called effing birds, which I love. They kind of F everything. There's just F bombs for everything. It's just a delight. And I bought a picture okay. that just is, they're all beautifully etched, uh, artwork of birds with big, like F bombs and things, right? You just have to see it for yourself. I love it. I bought one that just okay. says, nope. And I yeah. love, and I say it a lot. Nope. <clears throat> As a reminder to me of what I'm not doing. So, okay, do you mm -hmm. want to do this? Nope, I'm not doing that. I'm actually not doing this now and I'm never doing that. Like I, mm -hmm. I think that it's incredibly powerful. Learning to say yes to stuff is not, well, I guess it depends on what we're saying yes about, but learning to say no to people is the hardest. Here's where the most tangible difference is for me. And it's been palpable. Okay. I've been living in New York for just over a decade in Manhattan mm -hmm. and Wherever you go in Manhattan, someone's going to stop you with a clipboard. Someone's going to ask you for money, food, uh, yep. a date, uh, your attention. They want to. They want to tell you what they think of you. They want you to join their yeah. cell phone company. They want you to give to a nonprofit. People will stop you all the time. Yeah. I uh, when I first came to New York, someone stopped me and said, "Where do you get your hair done?" Now, this is if you've been in New York for a half a second and you're a woman, you've been asked this. They're giving away coupons for salons. This is how they approach every woman. I, of course, the mm -hmm. first time someone did it, bought it and went and got a haircut and I didn't love it, but, and it wasn't the end of the world, but the fact that I felt like I should talk to him and then I'd well, figure it out. I didn't want to say no. Oh my God. I have come so far yeah. from that time. Now, yeah. even now, if you're walking down the street and you live in New York city, at least so someone says, excuse me, can I ask you a question. You don't know what's about to happen and it could be, mm -mm. and probably is nothing good. Uh, I used to go, oh, well, I'm, I can't, I'm, I'm in a hurry. I would always feel the need to give an excuse. Yeah, always. Yeah. I was like, I have to get out of this. I don't have to get out of anything. I am walking down the street. Yeah. I have a place to go. I do not owe everyone my attention. And I thought, well, I don't be yeah. rude. There's that voice. I don't be rude. And so mm. now I just keep walking and I've been shamed by it. Mm -hmm. And men will be like, oh, come on. You're not going to even, you only have two seconds. You don't have to, how dare you? Nope. Nope. Right. See? Nope. Right. So yeah. when people stop me and they're not holding a clipboard, which is even creepier, because I'm like, what do you have to mm -hmm. say to me? One guy was like, excuse me, can I ask you a question? And I said, you just did. And I just kept walking. <laughs> nice. Terry, I they will walk it. down the street with you any day in New York City. I'll feel <laughs> a lot more <laughs> armored. I'm not um, trying to be like, yeah, oh, it's, you're being such a biatch, but like, I don't owe everyone my attention. I'm sorry. None of us does. Yeah. I unsubscribe from street vendor people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, getting to, you know, ultimately our uh, sort of like our primal, our evolutionary and our biological need is to be a part of a tribe. And yes. that's cool. That's how we survive. But at some point we started to ignore and disassociate literally from like the head, the chin down yep. to the body mm -hmm. and we started to say yes to things that were really damaging like i actually like your list on page 19 you say got check some got check some things we may have swallowed you say a romantic relationship or five that someone else wanted more than you did or the idea that you even need a romantic relationship right now or ever um 
So that is big. I remember from a very young age, people being like, you know, you'd be in middle school, which is like, what? I wasn't even thinking about romantic. No. I was thinking about sports and not failing out of school. Right. And, and people were like, oh, is that your boyfriend or this or that? I'm like, I'm, I'm in eighth grade. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to have a boyfriend, but also I'm in eighth grade. And we have this weird dialogue when we see people, we, we, we like in, impart our desires for their future relationships on them when they haven't even found their sense of self yet. Anyway, it's a totally. small digression, but well, there's a lot of it doesn't make that. any sense to me. Yeah. That, that you, who are you going to be yeah. with? It's this idea, especially for women that, well, you can't go through life on your own. It's dangerous for a woman out there. It's like, mm -hmm. even if you're in a relationship, mm -hmm. you're a woman alone walking around, like it, it, having this, you know, uh, what is it? Put this like aura around you that you're somehow safe. You're not safer. Mm -hmm. And anything can change. I'm sorry. Relationships are conditional. They change. If you keep choosing that person and they're with you still and you're with them, great. But the idea that somehow you're not fully evolved unless you are plugged into a pair is not only not fair, mm. but it's not true. Uh, and if mm -hmm. you choose to be, like I said, I'm in a relationship. I'm enjoying it. I find tremendous pleasure and you know so many wonderful things. But I wasn't in one two years ago. And I don't know where I'll be 10 right. years from now. I don't, I don't see life that way. Um, and I, and I mm -hmm. think that it's, it can be a trap to assume that you need mm -hmm. something that in, aside from yourself yeah. to be able to get through your life that you can't take care of yourself. Thank you. So I, I don't know if you know this, but I grew up as a twin. I have a twin sister. So for, from zero uh, day one on planet earth to year about year 18, I had a female, like a friend, a best friend. And then um, in college, went through college, and then I, I met my ex-wife and I dated a few people. But I've always had, up until about 31, some sort of like female energy in my life, this sense of like almost mm -hmm. like this, this energy of just like love. And then as soon as that relationship ended for about the last five years, it's so much what energy has been spent towards – Which relationship? Oh, my ex-wife and I. Okay, not the twin. My ex-wife. No, no, she's not great. She's I was like, oh, you're not guy. in touch? No, no, she's in bed style. She's a wonderful husband. But like the point is, is like the last five years I've spent in the dating world or meeting people or connecting or trying to connect because I had this story that I had to be with someone or because it was just so comfortable for me. I couldn't imagine my life without someone. And I sometimes think I could have flown to the moon and back by now with all the energy that I've spent trying to find this person I believe I you know, should have or was told I need to have. Um, and again, I'm all for romance mm -hmm. and, you know, I think we are meant to evolve together as humans, but damn, it's a lot of pressure. This sense of like, who are you with and when are you going to get married again? It has you know? its place, just like work has its place and your personal health has its place. It's just another part of life. It's not all of mm -hmm. life. Just like when you're in the throes of fever and you're sick, you're sick right now and then you're going to you know, get better, hopefully, right? But the idea is when you're sick, right. everything is sick, right? You're like, oh my God, everything I see through this lens. It's no different than when you're in love, like when you first fall in love and everything's that person. There's, you know, mm -hmm. ebbs and flows. Ask anyone who's been married mm -hmm. or is married. Your whole life is not thinking about that person every second of the day. The The point of like being in a partnership usually is to get out of that fever dream, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To actually move from having a secure hopefully healthy relationship to, there's a to lot, being independent. There's a lot to recommend intimate relationships. I highly recommend them. But the idea that yeah, you yeah. are somehow less of a person or not complete without one is also untrue. 
very much. So I'm curious before we go on to your comfort zone, which is a really interesting topic in your book. Um, I asked you what your relationship is with saying no. I got a, I have a pretty good sense of how you walk down the streets of New York City with a, a firm sense of. It's sense easy of to say no to strangers. What about friends? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, that's its own thing. What's your relationship? How do you know when it's a full body yes? How do you know when you're just like, yes, this is the thing? What do you feel? What do you think? What happens? Yes. When something is a yes, and I have been thinking that when people say, if it's not a hell yeah, it's a no, I don't know. Sometimes we do make compromises for reasons that benefit us too. But when I'm on the Mm -hmm. fence, I've gotten better about trusting myself and my intuition and saying, what really? Like, I know you want to take this thing on, I'll say to myself, but what if you didn't? What what do you what would happen if you didn't do this thing or you didn't work with this person, whatever? And does the idea mm-hmm. of saying no, when I, I picture it, I go, does imagine you said no to them right now? Do you feel lift and a weightlessness and a release? Or do you feel mm-hmm. a gripping? And if you feel gripping, it doesn't mean you should do it, but why? And when I say, okay, what if I say no and I feel like relief and release, I say, now it's a yes. So I, I weigh, it's kind of like people do like muscle testing, you know, that whole thing when they like, test like, oh, mm-hmm. what's your body mm-hmm. saying? I try to embody that. Like, what would it feel like if I didn't have to do it? I'm all in the like, yeah. I'm not trying to cram up my life with a lot of stuff. I'm trying to get clearer. Yeah. And the only way to, to set, get to yes is to say more no's. Because you're, right. you, if you're committed to a lot of things, too many things, it's the same as being not committed because you cannot commit mm-hmm. yourself across the board full steam to everybody. You just can't. And yeah. so when I feel yes, I feel light. I feel ease, mm-hmm. open. And it doesn't mean the yes isn't because I know it'll happen and it's going to work out. No, I don't know. Yeah. The yes is okay yeah. with not knowing, but being okay with whatever is about to happen. Yeah. So yes is like, it's basically like an energy of forward. Like, yes, we don't know, but forward. forward. It has momentum. Um, It has weightlessness. Right. Um, I was listening to Brene Brown recently on a podcast and she was talking about people who say yes all the time, uh, just to close the loop on this thought, because it's such a juicy one. And she said, you know, people pleasers, she's like, she's like, they're not like good people. They're actually martyrs and they cause a lot of drama. And yeah. so I thought it was really great for her to say that. I don't know if you have yes. any thoughts on that, but I, yeah, people great. pleases. Because I have some friends like that in my life. I know that they want to say yes to me all the time. And so they say yes first. And then later they have to disappoint. And then I have to be like, okay, why didn't you just say like, it's kinder to say no sometimes. Cause then, you know, yeah. actually I know I'm not going to do that. I know I'm not going to do that. Like maybe sure. Yeah. I could get into that. Don't, don't, if you don't want to, I will, I appreciate that with my closest friends and colleagues that just to be really clear, like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not feeling that, but I could do something else, whatever. But when people say yes to everything to please me, I don't want the yes. I want the result of it. If I, if I expect you're going to come do this thing with me and you say yes, yes, yes. And then the day of you say no, then you might as well have said no earlier. So you're right. People pleasing is actually very self-serving. People think it's selfless mm-hmm. to say yes. No, it's making you feel good now about saying yes when you're going to hurt me mm-hmm. later. So, you know, let yeah. yourself down now and do us both a favor is what I say. Yeah, it's kind of borders on like ruinous empathy a little bit. And, um, uh, you know, this idea of just like not really showing up and saying the hard thing. And one of the things I think about in corporate culture, because I just left a medical startup I was at for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, we were a small little startup, 10 people, scrappy, so fun. We were all drinking like 
kale juice at like ah. the lunch table. We had this no idea. Oh my God. And then we became a 300 person company by the time I left. So it was a massive journey in growing into corporate America. And basically one thing I found is that this whole idea of yes and no, it seems really simple, but man, it's really tied again to our evolutionary need to belong. Yes. But fucking like, pardon my language, not because it's my <laughs> podcast, like curse, but you know, like saying yes when you don't really mean it is a recipe for drama. And the most inefficient thing for a company in the That's world right. to do is just is is drama. It's drama is inefficient. Too. Drama is costly. Drama you know? costs a lot of time and money and effort. It costs morale and you know, just be honest. I'm, I yeah. am, at least I know that I have a reputation for that. I don't say things that I don't mean. And, and that builds trust. And the trust is more important than the pleasing. That's right. And trust is efficient. Um, so you say in chapter two, which is one of my favorite chapters, you talk a lot about why you, you make the case for all of us to stay in our comfort zone, which is very much um, against the grain, especially as we have this world now, which is very much centered on growth and evolution and growth mindset and like be your best self and all of that. And I, sometimes it makes me want to barf the way it's positioned, but (laughs) I really appreciate that you're asking us and you're calling for us on more than one level to stay in our comfort zone. You say one thing that a couple things that are really interesting. Um, you say discomfort isn't a guarantee. It's a condition for growth. So, um, I'd just like you to talk a little bit about why make the case for why we should stay in our comfort zone. I don't, I, it's funny because I didn't think I'd even have to sell this idea, right? Like who doesn't want to be comfortable? Like comfort mm-hmm. is what we're always seeking. I feel like the, uh, <laughs> the idea of, well, you know how I hate cliche and I hate platitudes and the things that everybody says, I tend to question the most. Like, why is everyone saying this? Do we really mean this? Right. I think it's glorifying part of a process that doesn't need glorifying. Like this kind of, struggle culture that's like, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to be okay with it. Yeah. We do have to be uncomfortable being with being uncomfortable because we spend most of our lives uncomfortable. This past year and a half was woefully uncomfortable. Most of the time, Mm -hmm. like this idea that we have to get out as if we're always comfortable. Nope. Again, we are often, like I said, outside of our comfort zone, panicking, looking for the key to get back in. You know, Mm -hmm. every time you turned around with a cafeteria tray full of food and didn't know where you were going to sit, that is one of the most vulnerable positions you can be in. And we've all been in it. Where am I going to sit with this tray? There's that sense of we're always, always dealing. There isn't a day that goes by you're not uncomfortable about something. So why not Mm -hmm. seek to be where we thrive? Comfort, by the way, is not, to my mind, synonymous with complacency, with lazy, Mm -hmm. with fear. Mm I look at a greenhouse. That's where you put plants. You want them to really grow and thrive. Uh, That is where you get the strength. Now, does that mean you're a little fragile greenhouse flower and you can't survive it when you're not totally comfortable? No, but I like to build strength inside the comfort zone so I can pull more things into it. I'm not looking to be uncomfortable more often. I'm looking to make more things comfortable for me. And so mm-hmm. I will endure the short passage of discomfort long enough to get good at it, to bring it inside. So for some people mm-hmm. that might be, you know, 
one of my friends uh, says, she says, oh, I wish I were more comfortable doing public speaking like you are. And I said, yeah, it is squarely in my comfort zone for sure. And I do my best work there. She wants to do more speaking, not because she's like, I got to do something every day that scares me. She says, I need to do it so that I can be more comfortable. Take the, mm -hmm. Let's take fitness. I got a Peloton last mm -hmm. year. I was not looking to get a Peloton. My sisters were like, you should really get one. I was like, but why? Where would I put it? I don't even, I have zero interest in spinning, none of this stuff. I got one anyway because I wanted to do it with them because they've been doing it for years and I want to be part of the tribe. So I was right. like, I will do it for them because I want to be part of the conversation. Same reason why I watch Game of Thrones. I'll be part of the conversation. And so I did it. And I didn't do like, oh, I'm going to do the Peloton because I'm going to uh, get outside my comfort zone. No, I did it in my comfort zone so that I could be more comfortable doing it. And you want to know discomfort. That bike is uncomfortable. There is no, of course it is. But as a result of doing it, I'm more comfortable in my body. So comfort is mm. the goal. Discomfort is not mm -hmm. the goal. Mm. Um, it's kind of like, have you ever read the book, The Genius Zones by Gay Hendricks? I have read another book by Gay Hendricks, The Big Leap. Uh, but yeah, that book is most recent. Yeah, I think it just came out or it's coming out, I think. And so it's all about the genius zone. And I actually was kind of annotating your book and the way that you describe comfort zone, which I really appreciated because for a couple of years in my most recent job, I was wanted growth. I wanted growth. So I started doing everything that I had no business doing. And it was the most painful experience of my <laughs> professional and personal life because I was trying to be someone I wasn't. And then when I started to get back to what am I really good at? What is easy? What would I do if no one ever paid me? I was like, oh, mm -hmm. I'm a coach. I'm a teacher. Let me do that. And what's interesting about your reference in the book about you say, you know, you don't want people to go out of their comfort zone because that's really where we don't actually thrive at all and learn um, is the commitment to expanding your comfort zone so that you can remain inside it, which is I know what you just said. But when I went back to my comfort zone of doing what I do well, so well that like people want to work with me and like it's I don't even need to get paid. I would happily do it. Um, I was kind of abiding by what Gay Hendricks calls the genius zone. So it's something they're that probably you similar. They're different do. names. They're different names. It sounds like the, the same. same thing. What is what is yeah, very, Gay say about that? He says it's something that only you only you uniquely bring. You would do it even if it was for free. Like you you love it so much, you do it for free. And most importantly, it fills the need of the people around you. It fills a unique yes, need. That's it. Um, that is it. Yeah. So comfort yeah. and genius so, are. They're, they're companions. That is the idea, is that why would you choose hard if you didn't have to, mm. right? Mm -hmm. I, I think that's one of the biggest growths for me is that I find I am doing more of what I'm just really good at, what comes so much more easily to me, and I'm so much happier, you know? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like staying in a domain <laughs> or like... Um... Uh, it, it's sort of like staying in a domain and then like changing like colors and textures every once in a while. Like I'm still a coach, but I'm no longer a nutrition and health coach. I'm a coach on consciousness and mindset. Yes. So I'm still a coach, but I'm just dabbling in different like ingredients and I'm using all of them to sit in that space of comfort and genius. You people. redecorated your zone. That's awesome. Yay. Oh my gosh. I love that. Redecorated my zone. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use, can I use that copy somewhere? Yes, you um, said it. You also say, 
You also say too, I think it's really important to note that and for everyone here listening is again, what you and I are saying is like, it feels like easy and common sense to us, but this is still very much against the grain to, to consider staying in your comfort zone. Um, you actually make the case, you say, you know, our brains actually stop paying attention to anything other than surviving when we're outside of the comfort zone. And I just want to like plus one that because from a, like a literally from a neurochemical perspective, when we are in extreme fight or flight, we actually don't have the capacity to, that's to right. And retain information. So, you know, that's, that's just something, right. uh, I want to yeah. cite my source there because I didn't come up with that. Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall, who, well, Marcus Buckingham has written like two of the most popular business books of all time, but I read an article of his in Harvard business review years ago. And that stuck with me that he says, mm -hmm. in fact, um, if you're not comfortable, you're just about survival. And that's not necessarily where you're going to do your most generative, creative, mm -hmm. insightful work. Mm -hmm. You're just going to try to survive, right? What a radical thought. Um, all of humanity, we've basically been trying to get the essentials to live, like food and shelter, so that we can be comfortable and survive. <laughs> I don't think people- And now what? Well, we yeah, want to fight. Now we're like there's something to be said. There's something to be said for a little bit of struggle, a little bit of fight, that we want that, right? right. We don't want to be a house cat as much as that's a wonderful life. We don't want to feel that everything's all done for. So we seek it out. But I'm always careful about the privilege in that too. Like there are people who do not get to choose ease every day. They have to work incredibly mm -hmm. hard at jobs. They do not like to do, to, to feed people they maybe don't even like. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of real struggle and challenge. So it almost feels really kind of privilege and rude to be like, I'm just going to do something uncomfortable today just because it's kind of cool. It's like, oh, uh, how is your easy life, right? So I say, my God, uh, but for the grace of God, go I into something so woefully uncomfortable. I'm really lucky to be able to do this. And can we all plug in to what we're doing to provide value in the way that we uniquely can? And, and on that note, I think Gay Hendricks and I are probably very aligned. Yeah, probably. Um, so I want to get to the chapter that this book is inspired from, although it's uh, all really meshes together really well about unfollowing your passion. And I know I've mm -hmm. watched your TED talk. I think you actually, don't you have two TED talks? I one, do. Two. The second one, no one kind of found that one. That second one's about relationships and why it's okay if they end. Uh, that mm -hmm. doesn't have nearly as many views as Stop Searching for Your Passion, which has more than 7 million at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I love that one. I've shared it a bunch of times with friends and family and clients. Um, so let's talk about unfollowing your passion. That, again, is um, not just against the grain, but it could piss a lot of people off because so many people, especially in this culture the last 15, 20 years, have been raised yes. with the sense that if we don't have a life of passion, it's a meaningless life and we won't be successful. We won't be valued. We won't, you know, have a good life. So tell us why we you should can. unfollow our passion and how I we do it. No, note that I didn't say live without passion, a life without passion. Absolutely. Right. I, I feel like, my God, we want it, but I don't want people chasing this ghost of one savior idea. The idea that we should follow our passion. If that worked for you and you're in the midst of following it and it's working out, that's amazing. You're also in a small group of people for whom that worked out exactly like that. Because the reason why I took aim at that advice, well, because I take aim at all the kind of latitude -y advice, is because so many people were like, oh God, I guess I should follow mine. What is it? Where is it? Was I supposed to, was it five exits ago on the highway and I missed it? Was it a train that just left? It just generates panic in people and anxiety and a kind of 
existential self-loathing that they did not choose the right thing or that they went the wrong way or that they, I don't know if I have a passion. That's like saying, catching me right after dinner and saying, um, do you have an appetite? Yeah, but not right now. Like mm. I don't, I'm not hungry right now because I just ate, right? Like this idea that we're supposed to feel a certain way all the time based on one thing is too much. It doesn't make any sense. Passion is a, an experience. It's one of the wonderful experiences of being human. Passion is not special. It is not a talent. It does not make any of us uh, better than someone else. And again, I have an eye toward privilege. Some people don't get to follow their passion to Bali, to meditate and right. teach meditate. Like they don't necessarily do this. I mean, they don't have passion. It becomes very kind of classist to me. There isn't, mm -hmm. let's start here. There isn't a human who wouldn't choose passion, who doesn't love mm -hmm. the experience of that. Yes, but there is not just one way to feel it. I want you to enjoy a life just pouring with passion, but it's probably not going to be because of one major, one job, one industry, one role, one title, one person, anything like that. Mm -hmm. So the yeah. idea of unfollowing is passion's basically a big Labrador retriever. Like who doesn't love a Labrador? Like bouncing around, loves everything. <laughs> like, but you don't go chasing a Labrador. You go in a direction and the dog will follow. Like you go yeah. and find lots of things. I think we cut ourselves off yeah way too soon. And we assume that we're supposed to be something that we didn't do. I want to blast yeah. away that advice. And that's the reason. Yeah. I, I love that. And I really appreciate, you know, this whole idea that no one wouldn't choose passion. It's just that the way we're going about the experience of passion is, is really graspy and kind of taking the heart and the life out of it. And you say in one, one, uh, section, you say we can actually court passion, not by making it a sign affidavit, but by giving it room to move and opportunity to be discovered. Um, so I, I love that. How do, how do people begin to exist in this world, start dabbling in things, trying things out, not necessarily chasing um, the passion, but just begin to experience and like try different things in order to find what they're actually, what, what lights well, them up? How do people begin yeah. to do that? Well, I think you just said it. I mean, it's kind of like the, the answer is in the question, right? Like, finding all of the times and all of the ways that you have experienced passion. And it wasn't when you were in the middle of being a marketing executive in the middle of doing a marketing presentation. Well, maybe it was, but that's not where all of your passion is. Rather than trying to locate it, uh, geolocate it or hunt it down, um, one of the things is to, to notice where that passion rises. You know, if you've ever gotten into a heated, fun game, a board game with someone or a group of people, no one would say, mm -hmm. well, why'd y'all decide to play Taboo tonight? It wouldn't be because, oh, because we all decided we were all passionate about board games. No, we created it. We took this game. We had a set of rules and we just played. And it doesn't mean you're going to be a board game player for a living either. But to see how many ways you can light up. Uh, I lead a lot mm -hmm. of writing workshops. It's not just for writers, for people who want to know their own minds and lives through the page, because I think it's a powerful way to do it. And right. I will ask people, I, I would never ask them, what are you passionate about? Because then they feel they have to give a smart answer. Well, I'm passionate about helping people. Da, da. All that stuff is such mission statement-y stuff. I can't stand it. I say, yeah. what is yeah. can you think of a moment when you changed your mind or you realized you were doing something well? You know, moments mm -hmm. 
pay attention to those moments. And where do you feel you were the most excited? I have a friend who was trying to figure out what she should spend more time doing. So all day for Mm -hmm. a couple of days, she would write down in a journal, scale one to 10, how much did she enjoy the thing she just did? Like at a 10 minute or an hour interval, whatever. What was it? Oh, that was a nine. Why? Well, because I was just doing this. It was so fun. You just met with this person. How was that? Well, that was a two. Why? She had metrics to look at. Now, I've never done that. Maybe people would like to do that. But if you looked at that and saw, oh, here are all the places I was passionate and I felt the passion come through me, well, then maybe you would start to be like, well, how could I do more of that? Then the strategy becomes Mm -hmm. fun. It becomes, what are all the ways I can encourage this? It's kind of like passion is a utility. It's electricity. It's not special. Mm -hmm. It goes through anywhere where there's a plug. So where Mm -hmm. are you plugged in? How can you get this lamp here plugged into that wall over there? Well, you might have to connect one plug to another plug and get That strategy should be fun. The minute you get fixed thinking or rigid about what you should be doing, I need to pick the one thing. Now you've ruined it. Like now you're not having fun anymore. You've killed the vibe actually. Um, You've killed your own vibe. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting is that we have this culture where we try to engineer and architect our way to the exact life that we think we should have in order to, again, be valuable or whatever. And we are squeezing the joy out of like basically mindfulness existing. And I actually want to ask you, what do you think the relationship is is between awe, like this moment of awe, like outside, you see a bird, this moment of like Mm -hmm. insight and passion? Because they they seem very similar in in terms of energy. I'm just curious, what do you think? As soon as you think, you might go, oh, I love bird watching. I'm so in awe of these birds. I want to find a way to do this more. There's a many levels of that. There's, I want to make bird watching or hiking or whatever part of my life more. It would make my life feel better. Yeah. Maybe you want to study it. Maybe you want to teach it. But when you go from, I love watching birds to, how can I monetize this? As soon as industry exactly. comes in, pay attention to mm-hmm. where industry or the need to do a thing, like Austin Kleon says this a lot. And in his book, uh, Keep Going, he says, beware Beware of trying to sell or market or industrialize every last bit of creativity and excitement and passion that you have. That's not a direct quote, but that's the Mm. gist. Uh, If you're looking for a way to make money, then you say, what are the ways I could make money? Then it becomes an expansive thing about that. But the minute you like cupcakes and go, I love eating cupcakes. And you know, it turns out I like making cupcakes. I'm going to open a cupcake store. Do you want to be in the store owning business or do you want to be in the cupcake enjoying business? Because as soon as you seek to monetize as a way to legitimize something, yeah, now you're you're giving yourself another assignment. And is it one you want? Yeah. I think we all need to really unlearn uh, this sense of having one partner, one job for life, one passion for life. I'm not sure where all that began, but I do remember feeling that at a young age, also in my Catholic school, which was like, what's the career? What's the thing you're going to do? What are you passionate about? As if it's a singular thing. Shouldn't Um, say it. They shouldn't. Yeah. And yeah, I I agree. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how passion ebbs and flows and how it changes over time and your relationship with that. Cause you've had a lot of great in, you know, um, insight and also passion that you brought to the world, What's your relationship with passion? I 
plug it in every chance I get with everything I do. I want to feel passion as much as I can because it's energizing. And so I will find the thing that fascinates me, makes me curious, makes me excited. Um, and I found that passion uh, comes through the most when I am uh, connecting with someone else. So I find opportunities to do that. Does it mean I do it every second of every day? No, no. I need to like store up my energy. I can't be doing one thing all the time. This one thing all the time. I wish what they had said to us in school is what's one of the first things you'd like to try out of mm. school? What would you like to try? And you're going to have to make a living, so you have to do something. But what would be fun to learn for a while? If they had just shown, like when people do tours, corporate tours, like first you're going to work in this department, then your whole life is a big tour. Why not start yeah. with what would you like to try first? And like I mm -hmm. knew I was I guess I would never have said, like, I'm passionate about writing, but I like doing it. I was drawn to it. I wanted to do it. But when people are like, oh, does that mean you're going to be a journalist? You're going to be a newspaper reporter? I was like, I don't want that, that, you know, version of what this is. I don't want to do that. Does that mean I can't do this other thing? Like, no, it's nonlinear. Like, you can find lots of ways. Yeah. The work I'm doing now, it's a, it's a job I made up. It's something that didn't exist when I started. So my experience of it is, where can I toggle that dial? How can I, yeah. I feel like passion is when energy is moving through you. Where can you allow yeah. that to happen? And if I, for some mm -hmm. reason, was not allowed to do what I do anymore, you're not allowed to do that work. I would find another avenue where I could do yeah. what I love to do. And I, and I, yeah. if someone said, you're not, you're in the witness protection program now, you can't do any branding work. You can't do any marketing work. Okay. Well, let's find something else. I would find something. I will never run out of opportunities to be passionate and neither will you. Yeah. It's not a limited supply. I feel like after reading your book and also this conversation too, your perspective on passion and the way that we show up in the world is, is very playful. And also, um, it just speaks of being agile and responsive to our environment yes. versus wanting our environment to be a certain way, which is very refreshing. And I think as someone, again, who's came out of like about 12 years of like the nutrition and sort of like health space, there is a lot of grasping and a lot of like wanting life to be just so. Mm -hmm. And your your whole book is an invitation to to play with life versus to <laughs> take that's what right. you want from it. You know, It is. And that's why I... Of course, obviously, every author pours their heart into a book and hopes people like it. But I don't think people will like it because it's me or it's because of my stories. I think they'll like it because I'm on their side. You know, I'm. these are tools for thinking to help you do what you want to do, not what I think you should do. And if I'm in your corner, right. then I hope that it's useful. I mean, that's it. It's that's what any yeah. author does of a book like this. Offer up tools. Hopefully it will help you, just like you studying books you read, me too, underlining and remembering. Mm -hmm. And when you read something, it's yours now. And it changes mm -hmm. you in some way. That would be that would be a real honor and a gift to be able to help people do that. And I'm not alone in that. Any no. author who wants to do that is excited about doing that and giving that to the world. So it's a real honor to have been able to yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah, done that as I've read the book. So thank you. Um, I'm curious for you, Terry. Um, we talked about this briefly before, but like when I think about this idea of unlearning, it's it's many things. It's what your book is about, I think, broadly in terms of like challenging yes. these constructs. But Absolutely. I also think it's 
I, to me, I kind of talk about it as like a coming home and a rewriting of the playbook that, you know, you're the author of. So when you think about what you're actively unlearning these days, I'd love to just know personally for you, like on a day-to-day basis, what are the things that you're still unlearning? Like maybe you're halfway there or you kind of toggle back and forth. What are the things you're still actively unlearning? I'm unlearning the idea that I have to, because I'm that, I'm still that A student inside who wants to do everything and do everything well, that I'm supposed to do or touch or know a lot of things. Um, my own hangup has always been that I don't know enough and I'm going to be found out like that imposter syndrome that rises in me, like it rises in anyone else that I don't know about enough about this, that I'm going to live a life and die without knowing a lot of things. (laughs) Like that's just it. But I am unlearning this. I'm forever. I feel like I'm pushing back on that idea that I have to know everything or to do everything. I feel that pressure too. And knowing that I can choose precisely where I put my attention and what gets, how many hours of attention do we have a day? Real active engaged attention, not many. This is a flawed machine or it's a limited machine or was not built for the kind of work we expected to do. So I'm trying to be okay with doing everything that I can in that moment, in that day, giving as much as I can, and then saying, this life is for me too. I'm allowed to spend it how I want. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that is something we don't often give ourselves. We think we owe our lives to other people. And Mm. oh is a very dangerous word. I want to give. I want to support. I get tremendous energy from working with clients and and, and teaching the programs and writing. But we also, at the end of the day, have to take ownership for the choices that we make and make sure that we don't go, well, I would accept that. It's like, I'm not a big fan of excuses. I don't like when people give them to me and I don't give them anymore. I don't try to go, well, I couldn't because of this. And uh, because every time I give an excuse, I'm blaming it. I'm, I'm trying to get rid of my own responsibility. So if I let someone down, I say, yeah, maybe it was the subway, but I'm not responsible for the subway. I'm responsible for me. If I can own what I do, be real clear with people, trust who I decide to trust, and also be okay with letting some things go and being like, oh, well, and and not saying, well, I can't because of this and that. Nope. I'm just going to say no. And I can't tell you how revolutionary this is when you really look back at the history. For a woman to have her own business, not just running her own business, minding her own business and that my life is literally no one else's business is something that in for women in particular, I want them to walk away realizing that they do not owe their life to other people. If I do that, I will have done my job. Hmm. I love that you said this life is mine too. That kind of like gave me chills. Um, this, that this, that this life is ours too. It's actually our life. And it sounds so simple, but we, Basically, from the time that we developed our ego at like whatever age, two, three, Uh we are subservient to everyone around us. We swallow things we're not meant to. We go down paths that are super rich and dynamic and insightful, but we had no business being there from like a psychological safety perspective. Uh And we need to remember and unlearn all the time that this is our life. This is actually our life, too. And we, we get a say. And I, I love that your book, I think your book is um, empowering that way. Again, I think it's a call to reimagine our lives. And I think it's a call to find agency in our lives. Um, my last question to you is when you hear the word unlearn or to unlearn, uh, what do you think of and how might you define it? 
Well, it's interesting. It's it's similar to how I think about I'm using writing as a metaphor here, writing and editing. We think of writing as generating stuff and editing as cutting things out. The same thing, and I don't agree, actually. Editing is writing again. It's rewriting. Learning and unlearning are very, very close. They share a root, right? Obviously, it's really about, because when you unlearn, you might say in a literal sense that unlearning is just forgetting things, but it's not. Unlearning is purposeful. Forgetting is accidental or things just get pushed to the side. Learning is the acquisition of knowledge and the wisdom that comes from applying that knowledge in the world. Unlearning is amending. It's Unlearning is to learning as editing is to writing. It's the relationship with what you know and what you're going to do with it next. And just because you learn to be an A student to please other people doesn't mean, even though you know that was a reality, it doesn't mean you continue to do that. So I think it's the next step of knowledge. Hmm. Thank you for that. I love that um, that example right there. I want to have you take a minute and talk to us a little bit about where everyone can find the book, um, Unfollow Your Passion, How to Create yes. a Life That Matters to well, You. Well, I'm no dummy. I'm no dummy. I uh, bought the domain because I my name is a little trickier to remember and spell. And so, uh, although Google knows, if you try, Google can figure it out. But I bought unfollowyourpassion.com, which makes it really easy. So if you go to unfollowyourpassion.com, what you'll see is a little more information about the book. You will also see the option to order from whatever retailer you want. I think that's important because there are independent booksellers and regional booksellers there as well. So to support your local booksellers and people who are maybe not the big companies that you like buying books from, buy from wherever. And then if you're interested, I have a little, I tell you, just tell us where you bought the book and da, da, da. And then you get access to bonus materials. That's why I want people to go to unfollowyourpassion.com first, because there's things I want to give you that are additional, that are not part of the book. And you can do that by connecting with me there. And that way I can also stay in touch with my readers, which I would love to do. So awesome. thank you for that. And thank you for this. Of course. It's been honestly a pleasure and so fun. I have a thousand more questions for you, but There'll be another podcast maybe one For day. For another time. All my little um, notes and hearts are in here. Um, but thank you so much, Terry, for being generous with how you see the world, how you move through the world, and how you share your story. And and that it keeps evolving and changing is really fun. And I'm frankly excited to see uh, what life is like for you in even, even a couple of years from now. So um, thank you so much. I us. love what you're doing with this podcast. It's fantastic. Yes. Thank you. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.